Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to this evening's talk. My name is Brian McGill, and I'm a student with the School of Philosophy in Dublin. Now, the title of this talk is Philosophy and the Power of Attention. The subtitle is that attention goes all the way. And you could be excused for asking what does all the way mean or all the way to where. Well, a full attention leads all the way to perfect happiness. So the fullness of attention leads the full way to perfect peace and perfect bliss. And to begin, I'd like to quote from some people who are in authority on the subject. The first one I'd like to quote from is Shankaracharya, who is a teacher. This is a man whom the school has had contact with for the last 30 years and in fact passed away in 1996. But during the last 30 years, the school has met with this teacher and has received substantial guidance. And this is one of his answers with regard to attention. The main feature in seeking liberation is the application of attention. If one has to dig, one need only dig with attention. The point of attention would have it all. For all powers work wherever the attention goes. With the fullness of attention, work is completed with ease and efficiency, with peace and bliss the gain all around. If attention is being paid, the work or whatever we're engaged in is carried out with ease and efficiency, on one hand, and the gain is peace and bliss. So if you want to, you could check back on the week and just do a quick look at all the activities you were engaged in and ask yourself how many were carried out with ease and efficiency and did they yield peace and bliss? And if we're paying attention, according to those words, that's what we should have experienced. If we didn't experience that, then there is some obstacle or some difficulty with paying attention. Emerson, an American essayist who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, said that attention is the secret of strength in war, in trade, and in the management of all human affairs. Vivekananda, teacher, another who's from the East, that spent most of his time in America, in one of his books he wrote that one of the greatest lessons I've learnt in life is to pay as much attention to the means of work as to the end. It appears to me that all the secret of success is there. With the means all right, the end must come. We forget that it is the cause that produces the effect. The effect cannot come by itself. And unless the causes are exact, proper and powerful, the effect will not be produced. If we take care of the cause, the effect will take care of itself. He also went on to say elsewhere that all education was concentration. And if we could teach the mind to concentrate, we could learn anything at will. If you look at our daily affairs, and just to see and consider for a moment the amount of time that attention actually plays a part. For example, 
if you're going to look for some purchases like furniture, clothing, what you actually look for is where attention has been paid. And you're willing to pay the highest price for the work that has been performed with the best attention. Vast sums of money are paid for works of art that are simply the effects of the fullness of attention. If you ever look at the great sports people, the great tennis players, the golfers, what separates them from at least myself on the tennis court is attention. If you consider places that you go to, like restaurants and hotels, what you actually look for is attention. And if you don't receive this attention, you complain and you choose to go somewhere else. You would love people who give you their attention. Relationships hinge on it. Have you ever heard someone say to you, all I want is you to sit down and listen to me? If you're unfortunate enough to have made a mistake, like crashing the car, and you examine it, you'll find that attention, I'm afraid, was at fault. A number of years ago, driving home from Dublin with my two daughters in the car. And we stopped to get one bag of chips between three. And we put these chips between the two front seats of the car and the girls were sitting in the back. And every now and then I noticed their hands slyly moving in from the back into between the two seats, taking a chip and then retreating into the corners of the, the car to eat the chip, you see? And I became very attentive to this. And at one point I looked down to see the two hands playing with the chips, trying to get the chip. And when I brought my head up, there was a brand new Opel Corsair sitting on my bonnet. And this all happened in a split, a split second. And it's all hinging on inattention. So it features, if you take something like a commercial enterprise like Riverdance and just take out attention and it is a complete and total failure. What we love about that performance is the precision, the attention and everything that hinges on that. So in ordinary everyday affairs, attention is quite a, a, quite a feature. So what is attention? It determines what happens in the moment. We can have all the knowledge and all the experience. But if we don't give attention, the previous two are worthless. And in the case I cite, the driving of the car, there's plenty of knowledge, plenty of experience. But in the moment, attention was missing. Now, attention is where the senses, the mind, and the heart are joined. And it's like a straight line emanating from yourself. So if this circle here represents yourself, attention is like a straight line out through the heart, out through the mind, and out through the senses. And if you want to think of this as the sun, the line of attention will be like the array of the sun emanating from yourself.
And the Shankaracharya says that when the attention is full, there's peace and bliss is the gain, which is an aspect of yourself, and ease and efficiency is how the work is completed. And when we say that attention goes all the way, that's what we're referring to. That when the attention is full, you connect all the way to this peace and bliss, which is your very self, on one hand, and the work, on the other hand, becomes full of ease and efficiency. So work is completed with efficiency. Now, would you like to do a little experiment? Yes, is the answer. <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask you to do a very onerous task. Just rest your feet on the floor. So we're going to test the words of the wise. And just rest your hand on your lap. Now let your attention go to the point where the hand meets the lap and let it rest there. And you don't need to think about this, just simply rest the attention where the hand meets the lap. That's fine. Now, if the attention rested, the job, which was very simple, would have been carried out with ease. But you also may have noticed a sense of peace and bliss by just letting the attention rest at that point. There was maybe a, a, perhaps a lessening of tension in the body, and you perhaps could have noticed a quietening of mind. Now, any time the attention is resting at the point where the work is taking place, that's what the gain is. You taste that peace and bliss of your own self on one hand, and the activity is full of ease and efficiency on the other. Now, the reason we don't experience this on a more common basis is because of obstacles that are in the heart and in the mind. So the attention isn't full because of obstacles here and here. So it's like we are paying partial attention most of the time. So we don't quite taste that peace and bliss and work is often devoid of the ease and efficiency. Now, what is not attention would be good to just examine for a moment. There are two common states. Now, these states are both thought of as attention, but in actual fact, they're not. And the first one is forced. And when we think something's important, we tend to do this. So you could find yourself behaving in a relatively ordinary manner, and suddenly you're presented with work that you regard as important and you start to force the attention. A deadline is a very good example, having to have something done by a certain time. Now, the effects of this are tension in the body. You become very tense physically. Agitations in the mind. You're not thinking too clearly. 
it's not that creative in terms of how you actually perform the task. In fact, you can find yourself making mistakes. And then negativity in your heart. So if someone were to interrupt you, you would get very upset. And it's like we become very concerned with the deadline and the attention becomes concentrated, as it were, or forced. And in fact, when attending this way, every little tiny disturbance is a major disturbance. A little child coming into the room to say hello could be a catastrophe. Do you recognize this? That's the first one. Now that's very common. And the pity with this is that we do this when we think something's important. Which is ironic. It's the very time when we would need to be able to attend fully to something. I could see it this evening. I was in Cork for the day, finishing a normal day's work there, and had to be here for half seven. And every so often on the journey up from Cork to here, if the notion came into the mind that I wasn't going to make it, that experience was immediate. Tension in the body, agitation in the mind, and, oh dear me, I'm not going to make it. Now, when you're driving a car like that, every truck is the enemy. And that's how they're seen. And they all should not be on the road this evening. Because <laughs> I am trying to get to Tullamore. And it's very, very important. Now, none of this improves the work. The car doesn't go faster. You're not more at ease. You're not more efficient. It actually hinders the work and is the cause of error. So that's the first one, forced attention. The second one is just the ordinary waking state. It's an ordinary mechanical state. It is really the ordinary condition when we think things aren't important, like driving the car. And we can daydream about a few things, think about next week, listen to a little bit of the radio, have a few meetings with ourselves as we're driving along, and it's all hopping all over the place. The attention's hopping. And it appears okay, in a sense. We wake up every now and then to make sure we're on the right track, road-wise. And when we check that everything's okay, we can go off then in another little dream. And this is the ordinary state. Now, what's behind that state is we think the thing isn't important. So when things aren't important, we hop the attention all over the place. When things are very important, we force it. And neither of those two have anything to do with just simply paying attention. They're actually impediments. Now, this second state also has a threefold effect. And the first one is that we become fairly sloppy our activities would lack precision. Our knowledge in any situation would be frozen knowledge. I've done this before. I know what she's like. I know what he's like. I know how to do this job. You don't have to tell me. So it has this sense of repetition, mechanicalness. I've done it all before. There's nothing new in this. I'm very familiar with this stuff. It's like a I know sort of attitude to things. And the heart fills with dreams. So in the physical sense, precision is lacking. In the mind, it's frozen knowledge. 
and in the heart it's full of dreams. Now this condition is the curse of memory. When the attention is hopping from one item to another, memory is obliterated. So you drive home with the attention hopping all over the place and as you get to the front door you realise you've forgotten the butter and you've forgotten this and you've forgotten that. Despite the fact that you've probably got it written on the back of your hand or you were told twice. But if the attention is hopping, that's a very agitated condition. And in that condition memory can't work. So you could put your car keys on a table and five minutes later have no knowledge as to where they are. Now when attention is full, memory is acute. And a face you saw 12 months ago, you would still remember. If you actually saw it with full attention. So there are two descriptions of what isn't attention. Now the fruits of this, the fruits or the effects of inattention, the first one is that whatever you attend to grows. So if you are someone who attends to worries a lot, they will grow. Whatever diet the mind is on, whatever we find ourselves attending to, that's what we're feeding. You're actually giving it attention giving it life so it grows. So if these are fears and worries and limiting ideas about myself, things I can't do, things I can, things I'm good at, things I'm no good at, if that's what I attend to, that's what I'm feeding and that will grow. And if you want a little um, analogy, have you experienced walking down a dark lane at night and just thinking for a moment that someone might be behind you? And you literally transform the event from happy person walking down dark lane to suddenly a tense body, a very fearful heart, even a little perspiration, and it's all as a result of attention. And you can conjure up anything, it's like a magician's trick. And you could take it further and imagine yourself cut in two. Imagine yourself not getting to the car in time or the house, and it could get quite intense. Where I live, there's a rather long avenue, and I had to go down recently to close the gate. And quite a number of evenings, you just go down and close the gate. And for some reason this evening, I thought somebody was in and around where the gate was. Now, there was nothing there. But approaching the gate was like approaching a, a bomb that was going to go off. It was tentative. I was quite clear I could see somebody there. Thought I heard movement. And it makes you quite rigid and fearful. And that is just attending to something, and it grows. So that's the first effect. It's whatever we attend to actually grows in size. The Shankaracharya that I referred to earlier said that Whatever you meditate upon, you realize. And you can use, translate the word meditate to mean think or dwell. So whatever we attend to in this fashion, this dwelling fashion, you realize it. So a good question to ask is what diet is the mind on? 
what do we attend to all day? Because whatever that is, it's, it's growing. The second effect of inattention is having a lack of willpower. And willpower is the capacity to do what you know you should do and refrain from doing what you know you shouldn't. Or another way of saying it is being able to do and attend to what you will for yourself rather than what you please. So in the morning when the alarm clock goes off, you may will for yourself to get out of bed. But if you don't have any power, you'll do what you please, which is stay in bed. You may will for yourself to control your diet and appetites, but if there's no power there, you will end up doing what you please, which is to eat a little bit too much maybe, or drink a little bit too much. And then we regret all these activities later. Without willpower, we find ourselves attending only to what we prefer. So some people can attend to business, but all other aspects of their life may suffer. They may be able to attend to football, and their business suffers, and relationships suffer. But they have a preference for one area, and they attend to that and they can give their whole attention to it. But many other areas, including their own welfare, can sometimes suffer. If there's a lack of willpower, there is no rest. Without a capacity to attend, there is no rest. Real rest. In the Bhagavad Gita, which is a piece of Eastern scripture, there's one statement that says, the mind that cannot concentrate cannot know peace. It sounds like a very humble tool, paying attention. So we need to raise it way up. It's a magnificent tool. And you may have got a taste of rest earlier when the hand went on the lap. Now, the fullness of attention is the fullness of rest. So if you're attending to something, anything, piece of work, you can attend in such a way that you experience that, so that it's restful. So the fruits of inattention, the first one is whatever we attend to grows, and the second one is there's a lack of willpower. And that lack of willpower translates into all ordinary activities. Now, the fruits of attention. The first one is absence of self-consciousness. This just means that you are not self-conscious in the ordinary sense of the word. Like it's more like a childlike quality. If you ever watch a young child playing with teacups and maybe in front of the mirror and looking at themselves, dancing, and there's a complete absence of self-consciousness. They're not in the slightest bit concerned that you and I are looking at them. Now, if you catch them, they might giggle, but they're not concerned like you and I are. They don't walk into a room and see the room and everyone from a position of an identity 
They're not self-conscious of this identity. They just walk into the room and if they want to take their clothes off, that's what they do. The fact that there's visitors in the room doesn't matter. And it's a very innocent quality and it's where you're not conscious of or conjuring up perceptions of what people think of you. And if the attention's full, really full, that self-consciousness state disappears. There's a beautiful description of the wise. When he sits, he just sits. And when he walks, he just walks. And there is nothing else going on. It's just a state of freedom and innocence. I was out walking with a son of mine when he was about seven. We walked past this house with beautiful roses growing in the garden. And he commented on the roses. And I asked him, would he like, would he like some? He said, yeah, we'll, we'll go in here and ask and uh, bring them home to mummy. I said, well, go on, up, up you go, up the drive. Bit of a drive up to the house. I hid behind a little <laughs> bush. And I watched this little seven-year-old just turn and go up the driveway, happy as Larry, knocked on the door of the house, stranger's house, and this man came to the door in overalls with oil on his hands. And you could see he was taken a bit. He was taken aback, this little boy standing on the step. And he, Daniel just said, um, may we have some of your beautiful roses? Now, within a few minutes, this man is out on the lawn with the hands clean, sick of tears, and he's given him yellow ones, blue ones, and a whole variety of roses. And Daniel walks down the path with a total absence of self-consciousness. It's just free. Now, I don't know how you and I would fare in that story. So the second fruit of attention is character. What you attend to determines character. And it's very simple. If you have a choice to tell the truth or tell a little white lie, and you choose the lie, that's what you're building in character. You're forming your character at the time you're telling the white lie. And if we attend to and tell lies, we're creating a weak character. If we choose to and have the courage to and are able to attend to that which is true, then we're building a strong character. And it's really extremely simple. What you attend to determines character. And we have a choice. We can choose the divine in everything we do, all our activities, or we can choose the gross. And man has a choice. And every time we choose that which is true and good and useful and follow it, we're contributing to the development of a strong character. Every time we choose that which is false, not so good, not so wholesome, we're contributing to a weakness of character. And with one little small white lie comes a lot of complexity. As every one of us knows, you have to build a scaffolding structure around one white lie. You have to remember what you said, who you said it to, 
And if you told two different ones to two different people, you have to have a very highly organized memory system. And it gets very complex. The third effect of, or fruit of, attention is efficiency. Like all precision in our work hinges on attention. A letter went out recently from the John Scottis School to the parents at the beginning of term. And we received the letter at home. And the first day of term was Monday. And the letter read that Monday will be an awful day. To all the parents of the John Scottis School. What the headmistress meant was Monday will be a full day. <laughs> Precision in our work all hinges on attention. And I'm sure, well certainly the experience here has been the regret when you read a letter after it's been sent out. The regret is enormous when you've got those two sentences wrong or the word misspelled. And something gets in the way we don't attend and off it goes. Now when giving attention to work, it's like there's an analogy given to describe this. It's compared to sitting on a mountaintop, looking at a train. You see where it's coming from, you see where it is now, and you see where it's going. And when we're not paying attention, it's like being in the carriage of the train. We're not too sure where we've come from. We're not quite certain where we are right now, and we've no idea where we're going. It's all moving too fast, too busy, too quickly. The second aspect of this efficiency is real knowledge arises at the point of attention. That means that in approaching any task, it's at the point of your attention that the knowledge about the task actually arises. So if you're digging a hole in the garden or trying to write a report or trying to be very creative or trying to do any, carry out any task, the knowledge for that task arises at the point of attention. So it arises, in the diagram it arises here. If it arises from myself, it's frozen knowledge. It's the same old stuff that always arises. And you recognize this when you have someone who is telling you how to do something that you think you know. You become quite defensive and maybe not so prepared to listen. And you really do think you know something. And if you were just able to drop that and attend fully to the task, there's the possibility of real knowledge arising at that point. And this is most helpful when you're being asked to do something that's not familiar. Instead of turning inward and thinking, I can't do this or I'm no good at it, if you had a little faith and a little experience, you could get a good sense that knowledge arises at the point of attention not from here. Creativity, we're still under this heading of efficiency, creativity flows down the line of attention. 
and the two states of inattention that we spoke about actually block it. So trying to produce a little creativity while we're forcing the attention, they're diametrically opposed. So when you're forcing and trying to make the deadline, you're removing the possibility of creativity. Or when the attention's hopping all over the place, it's also removed. So single full attention is like setting up the mechanism for creativity to flow. The next effect with regard to paying attention is that communication with others would be full. And this is very simple. If someone's speaking to you and you were able to attend, you would just listen fully. And in that full listening there would be understanding. If we were giving full attention to each other, we would know the state of the speaker. You would know and understand why they're behaving like they're behaving. You would know how to respond. You would hear and know what the need is. The relationships would be harmonious. I listened to a man this morning who said that he was fed up with being impatient with his children. Every morning he gets up out of bed, a bit like a bear with a sore head, and the house is absolute misery, getting these children dressed and sorted out and into a car and off to creches and wherever they go to school, etc. So he decided he would just take on board a direction that was given to him, which was just attend to the children, just attend to the simple task of putting on their clothes and putting on their shoes and give them your full attention. So today I listened to him describing bliss and peace in the household. Complete transformation, so he describes it. So with adult relationships or if we're responsible for children, attention would bring harmony to the relationships full attention. And the final benefit of paying attention is satisfaction. It's full satisfaction. Like dissatisfaction is divided attention. That's what it is. So if you're doing a job and longing to be rid of it, that is very dissatisfying. If you're doing some task and very concerned with the results, very dissatisfying. If you're just attending to the task and there's nothing else going on, that is very satisfying. Because when attending fully, the, the mind isn't off full of worries or thinkings of outcomes. So the attention is just single. So to summarize those, the fruits of attention, at least some of them here, the first one is the absence of self-consciousness. The second one is this link with the building of character. The third is efficiency in the work. A more fulsome communication. And full satisfaction in whatever it is we're attending to. Now, how may we grow in attention? The first thing to acknowledge, just in case we 
are beginning to feel that we may never be able to do this, is that we're all experts. We can all attend to something. So every one of us has the capacity to attend. Some of us it's to a particular aspect of work, others it's a game, others it's a child, but we all have the ability and the capacity to attend. So that may be a, a useful starting point. The second aspect is that there is a need. We need to appreciate the need to do this. If there's no appreciation of need, we won't do anything about this. In other words, if we're perfectly happy with, on one hand it's forced, and on the other hand it's bopping from one thing to another, if we're very happy with that, we won't do anything about it. There would be a need to restore mind and heart to its natural state. The obstacles are all here. So there would be a need to restore these two. And the natural state of the heart is open, full of love rather than closed and full of possessions. Like if you nurse one offence, you remove that possibility. You're, it's like filling the heart with agitation, nursing an offence, nursing a little grudge. The natural condition of the mind is still. So for instance, understanding that the mind needs rest, like the body needs rest. So we put the body to sleep at night, and sleep refreshes body, and in the same way, stillness refreshes the mind. We could turn to minimizing the use of mind, minimizing the tendency to think about numerous things. In the Sermon on the Mount, take no thought for the morrow. Now, if you consider all the thinking we do about the morrow, and the morrow, and the morrow, there's quite a lot of activity created in the mind against that instruction. That's also a good example of things growing, you know, speculating on what's going to happen about an event in three days' time. And we can actually conjure it up into quite, a, quite an ordeal. We can spend time feeding the mind on wholesome food, good company, good literature, even in the simple task of reading a newspaper, you have a look after you've read the newspaper, when you put it down, have a look at what you've read and see how much of it comes out of the heading of wholesome, useful, and how much comes under the heading of less than wholesome, sensational. And in examining this subject, that became fascinating here just looking at the tendency. It's like we have a, a fascination with things that are prohibited and a great curiosity about wicked things. And the tendency is to read this. And yes, there may be useful articles in the newspaper about more wholesome subjects and we ignore them. Or we start off reading them and then yeah, two paragraphs, that's enough of that. But if you look at it, it's actually quite an interesting thing to look at. Pick up the newspaper and just watch, 
your powers of discrimination where they go to. Well, whatever it is we're feeding the mind on, that will have an effect. So if it's less than wholesome and sensational, that will have an effect. It certainly doesn't bring stillness to the mind. The natural state of the heart is open, and here the, the difficulty is desire, and it's the multifarious desires that we have. There's a lady in the School of Philosophy in England who I was speaking with over a year ago, and she told me that she decided that she was just going to simply stop wanting things. thought that was... What? She, she, might, she might be a first. Uh, but what struck me about her, the way she spoke, was the simplicity of what she said, and you could see when she was speaking that she had seen something. She had seen the agitation, the misery, the lack of contentment, the disturbance, as a result of wanting, 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 wanting. Now she removed a great deal of difficulty by that one resolution, just to stop wanting things. Also staying with the heart for a moment, in the same general area, would be to stop thinking of me. If you look also at the amount of time that we think of everything in relation to me, this has immediate implications. Right now, in this room, you can stop thinking of me and attend fully to the lecture, to this event taking place. And the effect is immediate. If you have difficulty in stopping thinking of me, you can add and attend fully to the other person or attend fully to the person with you. So you can sit on the bus privately, dividing the seat in two and making sure the person beside you doesn't encroach on your space. Or you can actually open out and attend to that person. One is quite small and peaceless. The other is quite big. And in that simple shift of attitude from attending to me to attending to the other person, the experience is immediate. It's like instant relief or release. Now, all of this requires practice, so there is a need to appreciate the need on one hand and then be prepared to put it into practice on the other. And some very simple practices in attention. The first one is that every task we perform has what they call a working surface. There is no task that doesn't have one. So the working surface when you're walking is your feet meeting the ground. The working surface when you're brushing your teeth is the toothbrush against the teeth. The working surface when ironing is the iron meeting the, the cloth. So every task we perform every day has, has these two surfaces. And a very simple practice is to let the attention go to that point. And that's the point where it naturally comes to rest. <coughs> so if you're 
questioning how do you practice attention, that's how you do it. You let the attention rest where the working surfaces actually meet. And in simple everyday tasks, so walking from one office to another can be an exercise in attention where you actually connect with your feet meeting the ground instead of squander your mind on where you're going or where you've come from. If you're engaged in some practical work, physical work around your house, that's an excellent area for doing this as well. So jobs like painting and digging the garden could all become really useful in teaching us something about attention. When someone speaks to you, you could practice just listening. You could resolve to do that. Every time someone speaks, I'm going to practice listening, listening fully. Another simple aid is to lend importance to things. Now that can shake you out of this mechanical attention-hopping state. So when you're engaged in some task like writing a letter or driving the car, actually lend importance to it. And just deciding that it's an important thing can help the attention and help with the concentration. Now the master practice or the master key in all of this is meditation. A meditation is a simple practice and it's a practice in attention. That's what it is. And every practice of meditation allows for the possibility of a connection with this and this being your true self. Now, in the scriptures you're told that your true self is pure, perfect, bliss. And any complete practice in attention, in meditation, actually you taste that and it's the more powerful the meditation is within the more powerful the attention is without and the the subtitle of this talk is attention goes all the way that's what that's referring to if the attention is single it goes all the way to there if the attention is divided or one can't meditate, then that's not possible. Meditation also works in a way that's a little unknown, which is it simply dissolves the tendencies in here and here. So simply meditating is a, a practice in attention, and it also dissolves difficulties in here, tendencies in our nature which aren't helpful. Now, in conclusion, I'd just like to read the piece I began with. The main feature in seeking liberation is the application of attention. If one has to dig, one need only dig with attention. The point of attention would have it all, for all powers work wherever the attention goes. With the fullness of attention, work is completed with ease and efficiency, with peace and bliss, the gain all around.
Thank you very much. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So, what questions do you have? I thought what you said was very interesting. And uh, I think I would intend to try and apply some of that. I found it quite, quite interesting. A couple of thoughts occurred to me. I used to, as a young man, when I was told about the afterlife, I, I, we were offered two alternatives. One was eternal damnation and burning fires of hell, and the other was eternal contemplation and attention to the deity. And I found the latter more terrifying than the first. Well, the first one sounds and, more exciting. Well, exactly, and that yeah. leads me to the point I wanted to ask you about. Is this kind of almost the denial of spontaneity and excitement yeah. in this lifestyle that is about kind of attention, the lack of kind of impulse, you know, you, you described impulsive behavior as always arising from non-attention. And it just seemed to me to be valuable but tending towards the dull and the unexciting way of living. Right. What's on offer with attention is actually spontaneity. Well, you know when you're not being spontaneous, don't you? You know when you're trying to think of something appropriate to say. What's that like? What's it like when you're trying to think of something appropriate to say? It's very painful, isn't it? Yes. You couldn't call it spontaneity by any stretch of the imagination. Now, that's the attention is divided. There's a little bit going out on what's happening, and there's quite a large amount is turned inward, considering what I'm going to say. Trying to sound spontaneous and trying to sound spontaneous, exactly. And it's very, very painful. Now compare that to a spontaneous moment where you do speak genuinely spontaneously. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where and how you, you've managed to say it so magnificently. And you're entertained as much as the other person. Isn't that right? Now, those moments of spontaneity are an indication of what full attention is actually like. They are moments of no self-consciousness. You just speak and it's magnificent and it's appropriate and it's very timely. So contrary to the thinking, fullness of attention doesn't mean some sort of um, robotic, calculated, cold-hearted character. It means actually innocent childlike, spontaneous, fulsome, intelligent. It wouldn't have those dull hallmarks. I don't know if that satisfies, does it? Yeah. It's helpful. Okay. I mean, it's a very simple thing to test. It's one of the most simple subjects there is, this attention, because we can test it tonight, you can experiment with it this evening. You can experiment now. You can experiment all evening. Like the hand on the lap, it's just a little tiny moment of experimentation and it's, it's pointing you in a direction. When you find yourself 
addled and not at rest and not at ease, just to have a little courage to experiment with letting the attention be really full with what it is you're doing and see if you can actually, in experience, encourage the practice, if you like. You mentioned there about willpower and preference and lack of power. I wonder, could you speak a bit more about that, where one is doing something against one's preference and there's no power? Against your preference? For example, if somebody is, is working and yeah. they, their work is just drudgery and then can go home in the evenings and work in the garden with passion and energy. Yeah. If one attended fully to their work, that would bring a certain passion and a certain love for the subject. There are other factors. You have people's natures play a part. So, for example, it may not be in my nature to be a butterfly farmer. That may not be in my nature. But there is nothing stopping me attending to that task if I were presented with it fully and achieving and experiencing the effects spoken of, the bliss, the peace, and the efficiency. But it, it may be appropriate, nature-wise, to change my job into something more appropriate. So wh what did you mean when you spoke about lack of power? Well, you see, if you can't concentrate and can't attend at will, it's like we're puppets to our preferences rather than being able to concentrate at will when we both need to and or want to. But there are loads of times, I'm sure, when you sit down to do something and you can't actually attend to it. Maybe something simple like writing a letter. You just can't attend to it. You have to leave it. And you come back to it a day later and it's a bit better. And then you come back to it another day later and it's a bit better again. And eventually you get the thing done. But to be able to sit down and concentrate at will and just write the letter would be a powerful situation. And to do it efficiently and at ease. And one can train oneself into that? Absolutely. The simplest training is, is to practice attending in the small things. Like right now when I'm speaking, you practice attending to listening. When you pass the microphone on, Practice attending continuously to what's actually happening. Practice attending when you're driving the car, when you're walking down the street. Instead of squandering the mind on, you know, speculating about the future or dwelling in the past. Does that make sense? It's like if we practice in the small ways, we are developing a capacity for, for greatness. A bit of a follow-on to that uh, question. During the break, we were discussing the excellent talk, and we could accept the fact you would become more efficient with the attention, and you would get the peace and the bliss. But we also were saying that if you are into something, giving attention to it for a period of time, and you come out with you find you're quite tired, that it's, it's, it's drained you to extent. Mm. And it's sometimes suggested that perhaps we should vary our activities. And then we're just wondering, are there boundaries to the attention you can give? Or could you discipline yourself to not tire yourself out while you're doing it and get all the benefits? If the result of an activity is tiredness, 
you know, that drained sense. There's a, a little question mark over whether that attention is full or not. You see, to be totally absorbed in an activity full of desire and love for it and want for it isn't necessarily full, single-pointed attention. It could be loaded with desire, greed, gluttony. You know, it could be loaded with all sorts of additional, unhelpful stuff. Like, if you take the words of the Shankaracharya, and if you take those at face value and trust them, the suggestion is, or the direction is, that it's efficiency and ease, peace and bliss. Like when you're drained, there's something else going on. I got a phone call the other day at my desk to prepare a report, very important report. And it had to be done by Wednesday. And there's just, it was no time. But I said, yes. I would, I, would, I would do my best and have that for Wednesday. That was not a peaceful operation. It just wasn't peaceful. Now, the moment it was done, I then started to work on actually putting some consideration to this talk, on the notes of the talk, you see? And the notes were already written. And it's absolutely delightful. Because I was just looking at them and attending to them and removing a word and putting in a little piece and I was just enjoying attending to them. So in one case it's quite draining and tiring and in another case it, it is relaxing and peaceful and the difference is to do with desire. It's not just clean attention, there's a desire in there for a particular result or it's very important and it's very forced, don't disturb me. You know, the child only has to come near the door and you hear him coming and you let a roar. And an onlooker will say, oh, he's very busy and he's concentrating, but he's not, he's a maniac who's forcing the thing, desire is underpinning it. And it looks like he's a very busy man concentrating on his work. I just want to ask about meeting a person as if for the first time, which is mm. the instruction with full attention. Mm. If someone has had a very negative experience in terms of that person and would feel it very necessary to maintain that 10% to the back of the mind just in case that person was not to be believed in the present. I just have a problem with full attention in a case like that. Or could you give me any help in dealing with a situation like that? This is where somebody has, the, the experience in the past has been negative. Yeah. You go meet them again and you're sort of holding a little checklist in the background, is it? Yes, and would feel that it's very necessary to have that checklist. Yes. And what's the effect of that like on you? When you meet them, what's it like? Well, it's certainly not 100% present. Um, no, so it's not 100% present. What, what other effects come? Well, that would be the main experience of not being 100% present. The effort would be there to be open in lots of ways, but it would be felt that it would be necessary to be wary. Well, is it comfortable? <sighs> no is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there too. It's no. Is it full of happiness? No. No. Is it <laughs> any sense of, are you at ease? No. no. But, but so, it's just to highlight, there is a price tag 
you hold back 10%, I'm afraid you get the ill at ease, the no happiness, the no peace, the no bliss. That's what you get. You let go of the 10% and let the attention be full with the person holding to nothing. There'll be the efficiency, the ease, the peace and the bliss. You can't hold a little and expect the beautiful outcome. I'm just thinking in terms of reality, though, in terms of what is possible with, you know, what that other person has in their mind. Well, don't worry about the other person. The, this is real. This is reality. What we're talking about is, is real reality. It's about you being yourself, full. Fully yourself, not divided, not troubled with little thoughts of some negative incident that took place three months ago. That's not being yourself, that's being a troubled little entity. And the divided attention maintains it. And if I cause you offence this evening and you see me in Grafton Street in a month's time, it'll happen again. You'll say, there he is. <laughs> and if we're walking towards you, you'll have to go across the street. Now the practice is to walk straight up to the person and be at ease, let go of these little bags of tricks from the past. They weigh us down, they fill our hearts with misery. And that's only one little incident you're talking about. It's like we have a heart-shaped rucksack and it's full of them. One for Fred, one for Johnny, one for so-and-so. The victim in all this is you and I. Do you know there are people who we have funny ideas about that have caused us terrible trouble and they know nothing about it. <laughs> and we have terrible designs about them. Hatching punishments. <laughs> and they may know absolutely nothing about these terrible things they've done, that look they gave us, whatever it was, or the sentence they uttered. So we're causing ourselves endless misery by holding on to that little 10%, I'm afraid. Thank you. Uh, good evening. It's just to get back to your point, you made a point that um, with full attention you can learn anything, or we can learn anything. So you think that we, if we don't come to a subject with preconceived ideas, I am not going to understand this, or it's going to be very difficult, that we have a capacity to take in an awful lot more knowledge than we thought we were capable of. Absolutely. You, 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 you believe that? We wake Ananda, the gentleman I quoted, the teacher I quoted earlier, who spoke about this attention being the key he learned, the greatest lesson he learned in life. He was speaking to his disciples, apparently, in an ashram about this subject. And they decided to test him. So he was speaking with great authority, see, about attention, that if the mind is trained to concentrate, it can learn at will. So they went off and they presented him with a full set of Encyclopedia Britannica, and the account is that after a weekend, he had re read eight volumes. And they sat around him and questioned him. And he just answered everything. Answers came out one after another on any subject out of the eight volumes. But would he not have had an extraordinary mind? 
his view, his, his word on that is that he, the mind concentrated on the subject. Mm. Now, anything that you and I concentrate on, we don't forget. You could have seen a face of a person a year ago, and if you really saw it, totally free, you haven't forgotten it. You, we've all experienced reading something and it just goes straight in, haven't we? And it's delightful when it goes in. And then we've all experienced trying to read or study something and it, you know, it's like so painful. But we're not actually attending or doing a job full of reluctance, some little household chore even, and it's just full of reluctance. The effect is terrible on both the work and yourself. What more? Could you define boredom, please? I could. Inattention. That's what I thought you'd say. Could you elaborate a bit, please? If you're with someone who's boring you. Have you ever experienced that? <laughs> well, actually, this is an interesting little question. This is a fairly good cross-section of humanity in the room, isn't it? Don't muck me around here now. Hands up all the boring people in the room. <laughs> Amazing. We have the full section of the community here and not one boring person came. Is that not fascinating? Like if I said hands up all the people who come from the north side, you get some representation from the south side, some representation. Rural Ireland, some representation. Professional people. And here we have this amazing group of people, and there are no boring people. That's fantastic. So you can go out tonight and say you were, you were with a very special group of people. <laughs> what does that tell you, firstly? Um, it tells me that no person sees themselves as boring. Yes, so who gives them the label of boring? They, we they do. Was, yeah. I decide who's boring and who's not boring, and you decide who's boring and who's not boring. Now, when you're with someone who's boring, what are you listening to? Um, I'm, I'm listening to... I'm listening to the message in my mind that says that what this person's saying isn't interesting to me. Exactly. So who are you listening to? Myself, yeah. So who's boring you? <laughs> You are. So you put your hand up. <laughs> but it's also true that there are some people who just maybe talk for hours and say nothing, and that is, objectively Terrible. speaking, boring. There may be people who do speak for hours mm. and hours about subjects that you know, don't hold our fascination, but you have to spot what's actually happening. Sitting there, not listening, is very boring. But you're doing it to yourself. It's not, it's not caused by the other person. If you listen, perhaps there could be something fascinating in what's being said, or there could be something that you could at least practice, practice a little patience, or you may find something totally unexpected, or you may know how to act and behave and say, excuse me, and head off. Thinking how boring they all are, it's, it's very unpleasant. 
It's actually quite interesting to actually decide fully, to attend fully to someone you regard as boring, just as an experiment. Good evening. I'd just like you to elaborate, if you could, slightly on the point you were making regarding creativity and the fact that the attention should be fully out there on the point through the heart and the mind where you have starred there. I can understand the two versions of non-attention. I can understand the deadline aspect and how it would impede creativity. But could you ex expand on the other one, the frozen knowledge aspect, and how would that, that would inhibit creativity? Right. The, the first is really two aspects of the question, really. The, the creativity on one hand and this frozen knowledge on the other. But in other words, in approaching any task, whether it's a mental task or a physical task, the key to it is letting your attention rest with the work. So, for example, if you're going to actually do something physically, the key is to rest the attention and give the attention fully to the work, rather than be inside in your head, as it were, thinking, how am I going to do this? I don't know about this. Or, I don't like this job. It's actually to give the attention fully and totally to the actual work. I was asked to do a particular tile-laying job one time, these very complex um, mosaic tiles, and they were in a particular pattern. And I'm not a tiler at all. And the first response here was, oh, I, I don't know anything about this. I can't do this job. That's frozen knowledge. And after I got over the initial shock of being told I had to do the, t the task, I simply went and got the tiles, got the cement, got the grout, got all the tools, and got onto the floor and just simply looked at the actual job. And as if by magic, all the tiles started to fall into place. It's like if you give up the fact that you can't do it, give up the fact that you've never done it before, or that you would prefer not to be doing it. If you give up all that knowledge, which is frozen, and let the attention rest fully with the job, it's like, it's at the moment where it rests, the creativity flows. If it's not at rest, it's as though you've blocked the creativity. Does that make sense? If you're doing something in the mental world, like writing a report, you simply let the attention rest on the subject matter. So if you want to write a creative piece of poetry about a particular subject, you let your attention rest on that subject. And the more it rests, the more it would blossom. But if you think, I can't write poetry, or I'm no good at this, sir, then the chances of that have been diminished greatly. Thank you. Is that all right? What more? I was just wondering about intuition. When you said you were going down to check the gate, it reminded me that if I was in that situation, I'd be going, listen to my intuition. So where is the room for intuition? 
Yes, intuition, it's like inspiration, isn't it? Or it's like a hunch. Is that what you mean? There's plenty of room for hunches. But what I described going down to the gate was conjuring up, imagining, imagining someone's looking at you in the dark, wooded trees. And then simply staying with that and conjuring up the fear and the, the trepidation that comes with all that. Intuition seems to just arise naturally. It's not, it's not of the same order. It's like you get a, a sort of a gut feeling about something and it, it can be quite accurate and quite right. It's like intuition can inform your attention. But what I was speaking of there was imaginary things informing my attention. It's not the same thing. Well, intuition would be like a hunch in your tummy. It wouldn't set up tension in your body and perspiration rolling down your back and you wouldn't feel scared and you wouldn't feel like running up the avenue. You would just possibly get a, a sense or a hunch, but it would be very much like a gut feeling on something. It's like an instruction, isn't it? Intuition. Does that make sense? What was referred to as imagination, imagining you are being watched and then conjuring up all the fear. Am I answering your question? <laughs> Well, you could. I'm just wondering if you acted then, if you got this gut feeling, then if you act on it, do you not have all what you just said there, the fear and the, the perspiration and the heartbeat, then if you act on your gut feeling, is that not what you were doing? No. No, I was imagining ghosts. Let's be really clear. I was imagining ghosts looking at me. It's like a brother of mine had to walk up the same avenue recently and he said by the time he got to the end there was hundreds and hundreds of people looking at him. <laughs> That's imagination. A, a little intuition is like a little inspiration. And inspiration and intuition would arise if the mind is quiet and the attention is full. So. If the attention is full and single, the possibilities for intuitiveness would arise more often. But what was described is imagination. Is that all right? Do you really think it's, it is possible to train the mind not, not to want, like the woman in London? Yeah. Well, firstly, the wanting is related to the heart, the state of the heart. And the natural state of the heart is open and full of love. You can train yourself to stop wanting. Can't you? <laughs> just, to stop, just to stop wanting. It's interesting, but... The which? Debatable. The which? It's debatable. <laughs> 
Well, yes, it's... I asked you. Yeah. No, you can stop wanting, definitely. You can stop uh, longing for and wanting things, and you can just let that go. When you desire something, what happens until you get it? I suppose tension or, you know, uneasiness. Yes, yeah, so um, here we go, we desire something. That creates a little tension and an unease. Now, if the desire is frustrated, you find that that increases. So, for instance, if you're suddenly told you can't have it, then it becomes more serious, so it gets more tension and possibly more agitation and more negativity. And then if you're told you can't have it at all, for whatever reason, then it's doom and gloom. And then you recover from that, and then you start again. <laughs> so, accompanying desire is tension. There's an interesting little equation which I show you here. We assume at the outset that you're happy, and then a desire comes in for something. Yeah? And that brings with it tension. And you maintain the tension until the desire is satisfied. Then you're happy again. Yeah? When in the experience were you happy? Before the desire and after the desire. What was going on when you held on to the desire? Tension. Tension. And it depends on the size of the desire and what it is and how much frustration is involved, etc., etc. But you were perfectly happy before it and perfectly happy after it. So desire brings with it tension from mild, moderate to extreme, depending on the, the issue. I remember going home one time. We lived in a small house in Dublin. I went in and my wife, Valerie, was standing in the kitchen crying. See? Tears coming down her face, see, cooking the dinner. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I'm sick of this kitchen. <laughs> it's too small. Tears pouring down her face. So I asked her just to look straight at me, and I said, are you saying, Valerie, that you'd be really happy if the wall behind you right now was further away? <laughs> and that the ceiling above you was just a few feet taller? Are you telling me you'd be blissfully happy if that was the case? And she fell around the place laughing. Because it was absurd that if this somehow the room was bigger and I would be happier. It is absurd. On a more serious note, you say when you give attention to something, it grows. In respect to grief, we're all told that there's a certain amount of grieving after a, a death. And it, it, it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you continue to give it attention, does that mean you're, you're making the grief grow? Should you try to put it out of your mind? Or what's the best way to handle it? Well, certainly, if you, what you describe is true, isn't it? If you do attend to the grief and the sense of loss, it will grow. You know, to hold in memory 
someone who has died is one thing. To grieve and to attend to the actual grief about the loss is something else. And I spoke to a lady one time in, in Waterford, and she told me she went to, what do you call these classes? Bereavement, Bereavement counselling classes. She was explaining that each week she found she gained a little strength, and then she'd go to the class, and it opened up the subject again for her, and she became, found she became miserable again. So she asked me what should she do. And the advice given was to simply, certainly remember one's husband, absolutely, but to spend time revisiting the sense of loss is simply doing exactly what we just said. It just grows and it stays with you. So, you know, attending to that sense of loss, just, that, it just perpetuates it. That's all it does. actually only feeding the grief yes as a thing in itself yes Thank you. it's like if I'm away from home I may have my wife in my heart with me but there's no sense of loss or no sense of misery or no sense of wanting to get home quick or anything else you just remember one's wife and that's beautiful but dwelling on loss would just create that misery is that all right? You described two situations, basically, where there is full attention given to the task in hand or lack of attention to the task in hand. Is it the case that we are always paying attention, but perhaps to the wrong thing, or that there is no attention? I mean, is there the same fullness or amount of attention at all times, but perhaps misdirected? Or is it that there is an actual lack of attention? No, it's actually the way you describe it. It's, we, we all have the capacity to attend, and in actual fact, we're attending to something all the time. So, for example, if while I'm speaking now, you could be attending fully to what's being said, or you could be thinking, God, that was a great question. <laughs> and I wonder what's he going to say. <laughs> so you could be attending to something else while someone's speaking to you. So you're giving attention to something else going on in the mind in the example. But it's a good way to see it. It's actually the way it is. We have this capacity and we're attending all the time to something. Does that make sense? It's like to take it from the impediments and thinkings in the mind and uh, dissolve the desires in the heart and let this attention be full and let it come from myself through the heart, through the mind, into the creation fully. Let it be full with what I'm actually doing. Okay? But the Shankaracharya's words there are very simple and they're easy to test. Ease and efficiency in the work and peace and bliss is the gain. You could test this any time you like. 
right now, sitting in this room, attending, should produce ease and efficiency in the system, as it were, and peace and bliss should be the gain. Judging by your faces, I'm, I'm not sure if it's working. <laughs> Going back to the question of the working surface and staying with the working surface, I think in practice, you know, we all can relate to what's been said and I agree with it, but in practice every day, most of us find, you know, we're tending to one thing 70%, but we're thinking about the thing that's coming next and yeah. maybe the mistake we made on the last thing mm. and very difficult in practice mm. because the mind tends to be hyperactive a lot of the time and, and is there any tips we'll say that will help you stay with or there is a, a belief as well I think that if I only stay with this I won't get through all the work that I've laid out to me. you know we think that we have to plan and work to time scales mm. and what you seem to be saying and, uh, and I don't disagree with it if you actually attend totally to the one task. If it's only washing dishes today, for instance, or drying dishes, yeah. that is the way to go. Yeah. And it's a little bit like the anger question insofar as the effects should motivate you. For example, if I get up late in the morning and I go and have a shower and think at the same time that I'm late, I seem to drop the soap, there's no shampoo, the towels aren't there, everything seems to be wrong if I'm like a headless chicken and I'm late. So the shower takes eight minutes. If you just have a shower, it seems to take about two minutes. It's like the, the attention divided is, brings in all the error and all the thinking I'm late brings in all the inefficiency, the lack of ease, and then the event, of course, isn't peaceful and isn't happy. But it is thinking, I'm late, I'm late. Or thinking, when I'm finished this, I have to do that. But it's just thinking, and it's a belief that I have to think about all these different things at one time. Now that belief is false. It is totally and absolutely false. If I'm writing a report and thinking of something at the same time, it is inefficient. It makes the thing longer. It puts me ill at ease. It reduces any capacity for creativity and coming up with something new and spontaneous. The effects are telling us day in and day out that it doesn't work. And then at the end of the day, we're exhausted because we've been you know, doing this, attending to three or four or five different things at one time. And in some cases, we're shattered and we haven't been digging holes or you know, working physically. It's all mental exhaustion. Tip number one would be to practice. Try and see in reality that the effects of inattention are the tension spoken about and the lack of peace spoken about. There are exercises which you're familiar with in the school you've been given some exercises to help quiet the mind. 
practice of meditation helps. There's nothing quite beats copying on to what I'm actually doing. You know, copying on to the fact that driving up from Cork this evening, the radio's on and there's the reports coming from America. There are times when in the mind is I'm not going to make Tullamore in time and there's all this going on. Now you can turn off the radio, you can stop that nonsense and just drive the car. And enjoy driving the car. Or you can sit there, have this radio repeating over and over again this difficulty that's happened and be worrying about Tullamore and thinking about everything else at the same time. You have a choice to actually stop it. So the radio went off, stop thinking about the deadline and just concentrate on driving the car. Did you get here in time? I did. With half an hour, well, 20 minutes to spare. But you see, in your question, there's that inherent difficulty. Inattention doesn't make the car go faster. And worrying about getting here doesn't improve the efficiency of the journey or it didn't remove a single truck. Driving the car required the fullness of attention. Then we got here in time. Thank you. Okay. The effect is what you look at. And it's like if you went to an Indian restaurant and got sick, had a nice curry and got sick, how many times would you go back there before you'd stop? You wouldn't. You wouldn't go back once, would you? Every time our attention is divided all over the place, we are unhappy. Every time. Yes. I'm just thinking of, similar to that man uh, talking about the workbench. The mother at home in the morning who's going out to work, she's having her a cup of tea, she's making lunch, getting, feeding the baby maybe, packing the bag, all in the same time. If she was to give each task undivided attention, it would take longer. Oh, yeah? <laughs> this is from your experience, isn't it? Sorry, I asked. <laughs> now, what we're saying is this. In the question, there's a little error, because you've got to try and hear what you're saying. If I half attend to preparing a child's lunch, it's going to be done better than if I fully attend to it. Now, that's just not true. If you attend to something fully, it will be done more efficiently, more creatively, more intelligently. In that statement we read at the very beginning, it's all your power is where the point of attention is. So all intelligence, creativity, knowledge, even in a simple task in preparing children's lunches, it's at the power of attention. You may be thinking that if I'm giving attention to cutting a sandwich, it's some sort of slow and laborious thing where I'm crawling around the place at a snail's pace. It can be swift and clean and precise and fast, but it's attending to that particular task and not to five different things at once. Just to tell you another amusing story, years ago, I think there were four of them going out to school at the time. 
four children going to school. And the house was a pandemonium this particular morning. And Valerie was, there was school bags flying everywhere, and lunch boxes flying everywhere, and sports gear flying everywhere, all trying to sort of hustle out the door to school amid chaos. And I asked Valerie just to come into the drawing room of the house and sit down. I said, let's just sit down. Now, she was in the middle of the war zone. So I said, let's just sit down and we'll sit quietly and see what happens. Within about two minutes, all the children had organised themselves precisely and had made their way to the car. And in a few moments after that, one came in with the keys and said, are you not coming? And just prior to that, there's war. Now, that's not really an exercise in attention, that's an exercise in taking someone out of the, the war zone. But if you're in the middle of that war zone, with this divided condition, and thinking that's efficient, you could be the actual cause of all this mayhem. You could be generating it. Does that make sense? Yes. Just to follow on from that, can you attend to two tasks at the same time? No. Could I elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> can you make a lunch and exhort your family to eat their breakfast at the same time? You can, while you're making lunch, shout at your children to eat their breakfast, yes. But you can't actually fully attend to two things at once. If you want to do an experiment, It's a dangerous experiment, so maybe I shouldn't recommend it. And this has been recorded. <laughs> but on the way home, no, during the day, do this. Take out a pad and a pen and drive your car along. And just try and write a phone number on the pad while you're driving the car. Just have a look at how long you can actually take your eyes off the road and give it to the phone number. It's nearly impossible. What we do is the attention hops. That ordinary state is the attention hopping. It's hopping to children having lunch or breakfast. It's hopping to making. It's partially listening to the radio, partially driving. It's not resting on anything. It's hopping very fast. Lightning speed. It's all over the place. And it sets up agitation. And it's very unrestful. And I think there's a new name for it now, which is multitasking. <laughs> it's not attention. Attention is undersold. This business of attending is a magnificent tool. It produces glorious work in the physical world and it helps you to appreciate peace and bliss in your own self. And just the simple tool of attending. Would full attention improve your memory? Yes. Yes, every time you pay attention, you are practicing strengthening memory. So when somebody says, hello, my name is Fred, you don't forget the name. Do you recognize that experience? If you just attend to them saying Fred, you'd actually remember it. But quite often we go instantly into the mind considering how we're being received or he's got a funny nose or... <laughs> or he's not bad, or whatever. <laughs> Maybe his nose isn't funny. 
So someone is shaking their hands and we're off thinking instead of just attending. Do you know when you leave the car keys down, you don't know where they are? Why do you think that is? You are elsewhere. You, you weren't giving it your attention. When? When you drop the keys when you on put the them table. Down. Yeah. And you're convinced they're there. <laughs> it's a dangerous state. <laughs> Do you ever notice if your car's been stolen and you come out and you're looking at the space? <laughs> you keep looking at the space. <laughs> Talk about frozen knowledge. I was in a hotel in Cork a few weeks ago. In the room, we moved the table. A man brings in tea and biscuits every day at 11. And we've been there for years. So every day at 11, this waiter fellow comes in with tea and biscuits. And this morning, we moved the table from here, and we put it over here, just once. You see, we're setting up something. So we moved the table from there and put it over there. And this is what he did. This is frozen, an example of frozen knowledge. He walked in with the tray and went like this. The table is over there now. He, he stood there looking at the space. He looked like he was nearly trying to drag the table from over there back to here without physically touching it. Now, the reason it was so funny was because at the meeting we were talking about seeing things from this preconceived idea. And in the middle of this discussion, this chap walked in and did this. <laughs> so to make matters worse, when he was doing this, the place was falling around and laughing. <laughs> it was a good example of frozen knowledge. What more? I've not been before. This is, this is new to me. Whilst everything you've said has made perfect sense, mm. I wonder in, in just the everyday lives that we lead, how practical any of it is. Mm. Well, if you look at any mistakes that are made, you'll find that they're related to inattention. If you look at the amount of mental exhaustion we experience, that's related to inattention. If you look at all the irresponsible speech, impulsive behavior, regrettable activities, all to do with inattention. Inattention is responsible for a great deal of misery. I agree. But I, I still wonder, in the times we live in, when everybody is under, I mean, the, the, the constraints and, and time limits on anybody, and on everybody, mm. are immense. Yes. And I, I only just wonder how practical it would be even to expect to get maybe hours, only just hours, maybe a couple of hours, any day, yeah. of full attention. Well, a few minutes of full attention a day would be a magnificent start and quite glorious. When you're doing something you love doing, you attend to it, naturally. Yes. The difficulty we have is that we generally are only able to attend to things we really, really love attending to. And it's all the other times that it's troubled or divided. You can stop the wonder. You can test it and practice. You could study philosophy. I agree. If you're wondering how to find out if this is practical, because a lecture is only a lecture. Yes. 
to actually take the material, the philo philosophical material, and go and work with it in a practical way is quite a different thing. And it needs to happen that way. Thank you. If a man is in prison, does he concentrate on the sentence or does he find things to distract him? <laughs> you see, distraction doesn't produce happiness and peace and bliss. When you say concentrating on the sentence, do you mean like dwelling on the fact that he's there for a period of time? Well, just attend to what's in front of him. Like when the attention is single, it wouldn't matter where you are. You see, when the attention's full and single, all trial and tribulation in the mind is dissolved, and all feelings and attitudes in the heart are dissolved. So you would just be very happy where you are, and it's childlike. In the way a child is oblivious, they play in the cardboard box. And Daddy's over there trying to point to the truck, encourage them to use the, all the toys, but they're happy over here playing in the box. It has that quality. Sitting in a, a prison, or in any circumstances, bemoaning your state is the antithesis of paying attention. It's the opposite. So you would find something. Just what's in front of you. Hmm. You'd study, or are you thinking of going there? <laughs> You don't, you don't look like the type. <laughs> Sometimes our ordinary days are a bit prison-like because of what we're attending to. You, know, you, can do, you can feel quite entrapped. and The experience can be, it's a bit pointless sometimes. But attending to what's actually in front of you can be quite liberating. Well, are you happy to leave it there and go home? Well, actually, in fact, you can go wherever you like. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to go home. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs>